Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 433, air date February 6th, 2019. Right. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure, and I'm here again with Marcelo Guadiana. And today, uh, we're going to continue our podcast series. This is episode two, and we're going to really talk about is take the systems theme, Marcelo, and really talk more about uh, systems, how it applies to uh, modern healthcare, and really uh, focus on medicine and biology across East and West, because I think it's a great paradigm for really understanding systems. And I think in the last podcast, if you remember, I shared a little bit about my, in fact, I went into deeply into my own background. And I think when you really look at systems thinking or systems theory, what this is really all about, that systems theory and systems thinking ultimately is really about enabling an individual to start finding truth. And truth, um, we're going to talk about this. It's a very interesting concept. It's called an emergent property. So truth is not something that you just come across because you just happen to know truth, you know? There's all these spiritual concepts. Uh, I want to go into a much more, a very rational, I'm not saying I'm not against spirituality, but I think we want to get down to the fact that um, ultimately truth takes effort. Even if you take the spiritual perspective, it's not like uh, be Jesus or Buddha suddenly came across truth per se. They had to... Uh, work at it in some sense. You know, they had to do their penance. Yeah. Or in the uh, Hindu culture, you call your sadhana, which means you had to put some effort in. And I, I would say the most greatest truths, probably the most subtlest ones, uh, take more effort. And we, we, we think truth is just supposed to be something you just get from watching CNN or Fox News or listening to an expert. Um, and I think the real notion is that each one of us, if, uh, from the sense of uh, being truly human, has a capacity to know truth, yeah, and that takes effort. Um, is that similar to what Socrates says as well? Well, I think the Socratic approach is asking questions and recognizing that you have to chip away, and 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 truth emerges from that process of questioning. Uh, in a systems approach, what you're trying to do is not that dissimilar. You recognize that uh, it's not the parts that are important. It's the interconnections between the things. Yeah. And, and the more you interconnect that, it's almost like something comes into focus. You might imagine you looking at a very blurry picture in a microscope. And as you, you know, get the right focus, the actual image gets clear and truth emerges. Yeah, I, I know exactly. So it's called an emergent property. Yeah. Uh, so it requires integration. For me, for whatever reason, my life has always been forced to understand how to integrate things. It's, it's sort of been forced upon me now. I grew up in Bombay. If anyone's been to Bombay, Bombay's sort of New York on steroids. If New York is a melting pot, Bombay's like an industrial furnace. You have hundreds of different languages, people of all different races, uh, different castes, different religions, um, who live in a very small area. So you, can't, you, you're, you uh, cannot not... Uh, recognize that you have to get along and you have to learn how to integrate. Yeah. Um, and uh, But I also grew up not only in Bombay, which was this uh, a city within cities within cities, but I also grew up um, in a much more non-chaotic world, which was these villages in India. So at least one third of my life was spent 
in a village where the scenes were, you know, emerald uh, greenery, you know, coconut trees. Uh, I would take a caboose ride. Not We're not talking about the Amtrak in those days. It was actually, you know, like the Wild West cabooses. <laughs> and I'd be flying my little kite that I would make outside of the caboose train as, as a train is going. It's one of the most beautiful uh, events because you're just going through all sorts of amazing countryside. Yeah. And you see all different kinds of people. But my grandparents lived in a deep South Indian village. And uh, the scenes from that were, you know, you have these, uh, as I mentioned, these uh, beautiful fields. You have dotted temples, uh, typically workers, you know, working in these fields. Uh, 87% of India, by the way, is rural, right? So it's a very small percentage of India, which is really urban. And my grandparents, as I shared with you, when they came back from Burma, they were always farmers when they came back to India after World War II or as, as World War II was going on. They went back into subsistence farming. So uh, they would plant rice or cotton, you know, all organic. There's no Monsanto at that time. You know, these are, um, my grandmother would literally be out there planting individual seedlings. Um, you know, she'd come home with leeches on her feet. Same with my grand, great-grandfather. So my earliest scenes were these very hardworking people, my great-grandfather, my grandmother, you know, uh, you know, working the fields. Um, on uh, weekends, my grandmother uh, practiced a system of Indian medicine known as Siddha, S-I-D-D-H-A, which is known in the south. In the north, very similar principles was known as Ayurveda, A-Y-U-R-V-E-D-A. Siddha, by the way, if you think about it, it's almost the beginning of the word Siddhartha. So the Siddhars, as they were called, uh, believed in enlightenment, and they actually had multiple branches uh, of their uh, uh, system. One was martial arts. In, in fact, if you look at martial arts, most of the experts will say the original martial arts started in India. Okay. And then it spread. Um, they also had herbs, a deep study of herbs. They had another study of heavy metals, believe it or not. They used um, metals, what we may consider toxic metals, but low dosages from plants and learned how to do alchemy. They also had yoga, though the postures, and they had meditation to achieve enlightenment. Yeah. But the Siddhas believed, uh, the Siddha system believed that not only should you achieve spiritual enlightenment, but a manifestation of that was you could actually um, retain your body physically. That was p part of mastery, that to not age. And they had a whole treatment called Kaya Kalpa, which is a treatment that you learn these arts of how to do that. So so that was a Siddha system. Ayurveda, which is probably more known in the United States uh, because some people brought it here, like Maharishi and then later uh, other people. Um, and that system was essentially the herbal piece and the yoga piece. But the point I'm making is that the Siddha or the traditional Indian system was these five branches. So it incorporates everything. It incorporates everything. Where did the, the Siddha originate from and like when? So that's a good question. So the the mythology is that Shiva, as I mentioned, the god of creation and destruction, um, passed on the knowledge of the Siddha system to his wife, Parvati. And then Parvati uh, passed it on to her son, Murugan or Karthikeyan. Murugan, remember Shiva and Parvati had two sons. In the United States, everyone's familiar with the elephant god, the guy with the tusk, but he has a brother called Karthikeyan was also the god of war and the god of medicine. The story goes that in the Indian system, a warrior not only fights 
you know, goes to fight battle, but the real battle is against death. Uh, so that's what a Vaidhir is called. A Vaidhir is a warrior, but he's also a healer. So they're very interestingly integrated because you fight death. Yeah. So uh, Shiva passed on the knowledge of Siddha to Parvati. Parvati passed it on to her son Murugan. And then the story goes, Murugan then dictated the teachings of Siddha to the first sage called Agastir. And he wrote them down in these palm leaf manuscripts, which were then transmitted orally, and then people kept replicating those manuscripts in poetry. So this goes back thousands and thousands of years. Well, the... So the language is called Tamil. Yeah. Um, most linguists will agree that Tamil is the oldest language on the planet. Right. And, um, and we'll, we'll, we, we can do a podcast on that. But the point is that the Siddha, Siddha was a system. And so my grandmother used to practice a system that she learned not through any, she didn't go to a university or Votek school. It was passed on by various teachers that, in Burma and in India that she learned. So separate from doing farming on weekends, if you went to her home, there'd be 30, 40 people lined up. She would observe their face, and based on observing their face, she could diagnose their particular constitution of their body. Now, there was a whole treatise written in the Siddha system called Samudrika Lakshanam. I'm, I'm telling you, in um, so Lakshanam means face, and it's the art of face reading. Yeah. And there's, I mean, books and books written on this, or treatises. So the idea was, as above, so below, everything is reflected in everything else. So in the Siddha system, you could understand someone's state by looking at their eyes. Um, that's one method, or the tongue, but also the face. So she could observe the face, predict the particular um, dysfunctions in a person's body, as well as their base constitution. So you have the base constitution, who you are, and dysfunctions. And then she would formulate particular combinations of herbs that she knew, Sometimes she gave people particular massages or particular even yoga exercises. So everything was customized. You see, so even though you may have the same ailment, let's say some liver ailment, and I may have that, if we were different constitutions, we would get very different kinds of um, treatments. Yeah. So today, uh, we call it you know, precision medicine, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Well, this is what the Indian system of medicine was always based on. Um, so is any uh, type of, is, is this used in modern medicine today at all, you think? Well, so, so in India, if you have a health card, in India it's called Ayush, A-Y-U-S-H, which is a ministry in the Indian government, A for Ayurveda, Y for Yoga, U for Unani, which is a Middle Eastern version, S for Siddha, H for Homeopathy. So you can go to these Ayush practitioners in addition to what we call allopathic, traditional Western medicine. Okay. Um, and so you can get both treatments uh, from, from both uh, sets of people that, that you're interested in. And so my grandmother was able to practice this. And, you know, um, we can do a whole lecture or podcast on the Indian system of medicine. You know, they didn't have the terms genes, proteins, you know, disease. Uh, in the Indian system of medicine, all disease had one cure, which was food and nutrition. Yeah. All disease had one cure, which was food and nutrition. The notion was when you had imbalances in that, it's, that's what ca causes disease. And they had the notion that all disease went through different stages, six stages. So in their writings, when they talked about disease, if you catch it in the early stage, you can fix it much sooner. In Western medicine, we, we typically seem to catch it in stage five or six 
And then we have to hit it, bombard it with chemotherapy or invasive treatments. Um, so in that system of medicine, there was a whole language that they had. Uh, and that language not only was for the body, it went all the way to the beginning of creation. So they had a terminology which meant the body, uh, that the, the universe had, at one point there was nothingness, unmanifest energy, which means nothing existed, which they called purusha. Okay. And at a certain point, um, they put it in mythological terms, the creator god or aspect of Shiva wakes up Brahma, and when he wakes up, um, that begins the universe. And that causes prakriti, which is everything that is manifest. So you go from nothingness to manifest. And that manifestation has various levels. Initially, the subtleness is energy. And they had different flavors of that energy. Three flavors, sattva, rajas, and tamas. Sattva was the energy of like saints, very light, airy. Tamas was much more heavy, like the energy of like criminals, if you want to think about it. And rajas were the energy of warriors. Again. And then those energies then gave rise to physical matter which they put into space, air, fire, water, and earth. They called it panchabhutas, five, five elements. And those material bases gave rise to what they called the doshas, or the aspects of the body. Vata, pitta, and kapha. And you don't have to get into this. I mean, we'll do a whole podcast on this. But And that vata, pitta, and kapha, those three manifestations of matter gave rise to the tissues in the body, seven different tissues, which then gave rise to the body. And now in the Indian system, you not only had the mind, the brain, or, or, or the senses, but you also had another thing called chakras, which we in Western medicine don't understand. They called energy centers. And these energy centers uh, uh, were um, linked to different aspects of you, not only in the physical plane, but in other planes. So you can see it's integrated end to end. Um, so this system, as I mentioned, it, it, it got passed on to these different sages throughout um, time, you know, thousands of years. And the thing was, you know, when people think about the Indian guru, they see the guy with long hair, a beard, and wearing some saffron robe. Um, you got to understand these people were modern scientists. In those days, they called them rishis. Um, many of these people were against religion. Siddhars okay. were against religion organized religion. They were into the scientific method. They believed you had to explore, and they were scientists. Yeah, that's of, what I was going to ask if this was part of uh, Hinduism as well. Well, Hinduism, if you uh, look at Hinduism, eliminate the H, it's Indus. It's the culture of the Indus Valley, because it was known as Indus, I-N-D-U-S. So in Hinduism, believe it or not, is a completely disorganized, quote-unquote, religion. Okay. That's why... Uh, it's very hard to understand what is Hinduism. You have thousands of different deities. You have all different ranges, but the core set of Siddha, Shaiva Siddhanta, uh, which is Shiva, m this form of manifest and unmanifest energy, uh, which has a material component, which were these teachings, um, which we can get into, there's a whole mythology, but ultimately it was a systems analysis okay. of existence. And that's what these rishis were. Um, and these rishis wrote down their stuff. They were very secretive to the extent they knew they had very powerful knowledge. So when they would pass it on, they passed it on in poetry. So we talk about cryptography. Their poetry was cryptography in the sense they had two messages in the poetry. 
One was, oh, that sounds, you know, like a message about, you know, um, some interesting, if you were to just read it as a message, it would sound like, oh, they're just talking about something very apparent, right? Um, but then you had to be able to decipher it. If you, for example, if you read Shakespeare, you know, there's one way of reading it and there's another way where you actually understand the meaning of it. Yeah. It's two meanings. Yeah. And the deeper meaning, you have to learn an art of how to decipher. But in that deeper meaning was a medical or the, the real knowledge of anti-aging, how to combine things. Because they didn't want this to fall into uh, people who are amateurs and would misuse their knowledge. And so there's hundreds of thousands of these palm manuscripts well, like you're saying you got to put effort into knowing. Truth. You got to, yeah. yeah. So you have to decipher it. Yeah. Just like if you read Shakespeare, uh, for example, if you see when Polonius tells his son Laertes in Hamlet's, "To thy own self be true." Okay, sounds like you know, be true. But then what you really read, you look at the life of Polonius and Laertes. Polonius is a complete liar. So for Polonius to tell his son, "To thy own self be true," is that conversation is really about hypocrisy. People speak one thing, but do other things. Yeah. You see, but to the apparent thing, oh, isn't he saying something nice? So there was always this apparent language and then the, the, the reality, the superficial and the real. Yeah, very analogous to politics nowadays. Exactly. World. Right. But you, had to be, you have to have this wisdom to separate the words, what they meant. They may sound cool to what they actually really meant. Yeah. Um, but I'll give you an example. One of the, I may get the paraphrasing wrong. It says, when you climb to the top of the mountain, you will get nectar. Okay? Well, the actual meaning of that, in the context, if you read it, is when you climb to the top of the mountain in the body, they say the temple of God is within you. So the body, in the Indian tradition, the top of the mountain is your pineal gland, which is your third eye. When you meditate on that, the pineal gland actually releases melatonin, which is a secretion. Also and it's, a DMT, right? Uh, yeah, or DMT, et cetera. Yeah. But the point was, when you reach the top of the mountain, in fact, I think the, the original, you know, you'll get a mango and, and, and you'll get, um, you know, the, the, the syrup release from it. What it really meant is when you go to the top of your own mountain within you, you will release the, the uh, you'll be able to release melatonin, what we call it today, yeah. or the particular... Um, fluid, which actually allows you to have enlightenment. You see, so there's two meanings here. Yeah. So someone could say, oh, you just go to a top of a mountain and you achieve enlightenment. But what they're really talking about when you go to the mountain within you. So that's how the Siddh, and, and this is all written in Tamil. By the way, there's hundreds of thousands of these palm leaf manuscripts. And in 2007, the Indian government started funding it to actually start deciphering them. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my, uh, the reason I bring this up is, after I went through my four degrees at MIT, my PhD, I actually went back to India in 2007, as I mentioned, and I studied Siddha. Um, you know, I also, prior going to that, I had all this tra engineering training and biological training in the Western system. So the Indian tradition looked at the world. That system had its own language of how they perceived the body, the world. Now, in the Western world, we look at the body as genes and proteins and metabolites and molecular pathways. So if you talk to a Western biologist, he doesn't, if you told him Purushan, Prakriti, and Vata, Pitta, he's going to think this is a bunch of witch doctor. Yeah, yeah But if exactly. you told him in the language of, oh, um, you know, the pineal gland, you know, is the center of the endocrine system and it releases melatonin, which is a master regulator, blah, 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 right? They get it, right? So you're looking at a language issue here. The Indian system of medicine had its own language. 
the Western system have had its own language. So when I went back to India in 2007, I was very intent on seeing if I could bridge both these worlds because my view was truth is truth is truth. You look at the body, we may have a certain language for describing it, the Indians may have a different word, but they're still it's still the body and we should still be able to decipher the same functions. In fact, they had a 5,000, 10,000 year old head start. We've only been doing this for about a couple hundred years, if you think about it. Yeah. Is there some things from their system that can really benefit us so we don't have to waste another 5,000 years? Yeah, so the translation can get misinterpreted. Exactly. For right. people to think it's all like, like bananas and like cuckoo, it's not really. A- exactly. So. If you remember, the biggest thing, there's a stone, if you've been to the British Museum, called the Rosetta Stone. It's a great thing to go see. I don't know if you know what that is. You may have studied in history class. If you take European history, it talks about when Napoleon came across a Rosetta Stone. Okay. So there was Greece, Old Greek, and then there was hieroglyphics. And people never knew how to decipher hieroglyphics. Um, I believe uh, when they found this tablet... Uh, I may get this not precise, but on this tablet was a speech that Ptolemy had given. And that speech was in Greek, uh, Old Greek, as well as in hieroglyphics. So we had the Rosetta Stone was able to help us translate from hieroglyphics to Greek. Okay. So my goal was could I figure out a Rosetta Stone to translate traditional systems of Indian medicine to the modern world? Because if we could do that, then we could have a window. Because they had come up with them. So if you believe that they had amazing formulations, they could cure all sorts of illnesses. Do we want to spend 5,000 years to find cures when they may have actually found those? But in a different language. Yeah. So that was really my intent. Um, And in fact, so I finished my PhD and the front page of MIT. Remember, I went back to do my PhD at the age of 40, you know, because I'd done a company. uh, And at 44, I got my PhD and I go back to India. What made you get back your PhD? Because I was always interested in medicine. Yeah, that's right. And I'd been in and out, and I never liked um, Western medicine. But in 2003, when I went back to MIT to do my PhD, this new field called systems biology was coming, which we'll talk about. And it was funny because up until then, Western biology was not systems-based. It was reductionist. Um, Reductionism, we'll talk a lot about that versus a systems approach. Reductionism is looking at the parts of a problem, not the interconnections. So, for example, if you go to a doctor today, ask any doctor, you have a headache, the entire medical system is incented to not address your body as a system. They'll say, oh, you have that headache. You know, they'll give you one prescription to go see a therapist, another prescription to, for a headache, another pr- prescription to go see an endocrinologist, another prescription maybe to see a neurologist, right? You, you may end up seeing five specialists. Yeah. Um, uh, give you an idea. My dad plays a lot of Sudoku, <laughs> and he's and he uses iPhone. He's eighty five years old. He's always bent over on his neck, so he was unable to swallow. So he goes to the ENT guy. Well, the, that guy just looks at his throat and says, "Oh, you have a throat issue," um, and tells him to do some exercises for his throat. Okay, now. If he had breathing issues, the lung guy, luckily doesn't have it, the pulmonologist would say, oh, you have a breathing issue, take this and this and this, okay? But when you really look at it, when you bend your neck over, and everyone should be thinking about this, if you use your lot of iPhones, we're all hunched over, what happens is as you do that over and over again, you actually wear the frontal vertebral bone, C1, C2, C3. 
Really? And so that's what he's done. So he has no bone support there. Wow. So chiropractors know this. You know, some people don't like chiropractors. But chiropractors look at the body as a system. So the so what will happen is he'll, he will not only have throat issues over time. You won't be able to swallow. He's also going to have breathing issues. But if you take a systems approach, you'll know it has to do with posture. And you have to address that. Not just address the throat issue or the lung issue. Yeah, so a chiropractor would actually fix that. Well, chiropractors, by and large, are trained to look at the body as a system. They know the ankle bone's connected to the foot bone. Modern medicine is reductionist. You go to the doctor, you get triaged. And we'll talk about why. Yeah, so I mean, a doctor would never tell you, oh, do yoga or exercise. Very rarely, right? Very rarely, right? They are taught, because of the healthcare system, it's to maximize... Uh, the hospital visit. So the hospital, literally now, when you go there, they want to find as many specialists that you can go to. That's to maximize profit. To maximize profit. Okay. And also because if you look at the history of medicine, the system of modern medicine, you know where it came from? Um, after World War II, I believe, right? I th- Before that. Okay. But you, you, the key word used there was war. Yeah. Modern medicine is an outcome of war. And the real creator of the modern healthcare system was Florence Nightingale. Um, in the 1800s, Crimean War is taking place. Uh, Florence Nightingale, you know, she's been reduced probably for a lot of sexist reasons that she's just a nurse. Okay, American? Flo- yeah. Is she American? She, no, no, Florence Nightingale was oh, British, okay. right? Not British, okay. So Florence Nightingale, you know, it's like when I was a kid, I, read, I used to love reading biographies. You know, they said Florence Nightingale, this nurse who took care of soldiers. Florence Nightingale was a member of the Royal Society of Statistics. She was the mother of data visualization. She was the mother of big data. She was there out on the field and she noticed something very peculiar with the data. Soldiers were fighting on the field and they were not dying of being shot on the battleground. They were dying of untreated wounds when they came into the hospital. And she did this beautiful exploding pie chart where where she showed that month over month over month as the war was going on, that soldiers were actually dying in uh, the hospital in the 1800s you went to the hospital to die you didn't yeah. there was no clean rooms and health care and nurses running around with white hats and doctors coming there to look at you. you went into the hospital to die so the wounds were getting infected wounds much. were getting infected um so what florence nightingale did was she, she had this vision she was looking 300 years into the future she said okay let's make these hospitals a let's clean them up hygiene the floors the curtains then she said okay if we clean up the hospitals then maybe doctors will come into the hospitals and look at these patients and then maybe they will actually find medicines and do clinical research so she had a vision but the the goal was at that time was you brought in a soldier figure out what medicines you can give them to put them back on the field yeah so it's a triage model it wasn't about finding the underlying reason like why war was taking place yeah soldiers arms cut off Let's treat that arm. Let's sew it back, right? So Western medicine evolved from that crisis management model. Yeah. So it's excellent. You know, God forbid something happen. Your arm does. You know, a friend of mine, um, uh, interesting guy. He wor- used to work for Good Housekeeping magazine. He wrote like the book on how to take take care of your lawnmower or your snowblower. You know, like don't stick your finger in and all that. Like the safety book. Ironically, he was using a snowblower and he cut his finger off. <laughs> okay. Okay. And but the point was, modern medicine was able to sew that finger on beautifully, and he uh, you know he's fully recovered. 
So Western medicine is phenomenal for yeah. crisis situations, right? I see, yeah, but not for all other things. Just for it knows nothing about nutrition. Yeah. It knows nothing about the body as an interconnected system. But God forbid, um, you 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 know you need Botox, right? It's great for that. Your nose gets blown off. It'll put that back together, right? It's yeah, good. Immediate results. That's immediate good. crisis, Matt. After you've gotten cancer, when you've been eating horribly for thirty years of your life, it'll start bombarding it with chemo agents. It's it's basically uh, cluster bombing wartime, right? Attack the enemy. Yeah. It's that model of medicine. So, but Eastern systems of medicine, these yogis and these rishis would just sit out for a hundred years, sometimes or fifty years, and just observe one little flower growing and make one observation. They record it, right? So they were more into looking at things over long periods of time and would extract some knowledge out of that. They would be out there eating different herbs and recording this stuff. Um, these people were scientists. The Kama Sutra, which is the book of Indian sex, right? These people were sexual scientists. They would they would watch how animals screwed each other, this and that. How you know? And they would write all these down. So yeah. these guys were interesting characters. They were ultimate observers, but they did it over a long time span. They weren't into I got to get that soldier back on the battlefield. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. Just two different systems. Yeah, okay, I see. So when I went back to India, uh, it was funny that front page of the official MIT newspaper, front page article, it said Fulbright Scholar on New Adventure, armed with four degrees, Shiva Idre heads back to India. So they found it sort of, why would this guy, after he got his amazing degrees at MIT, why does he want to go back to India, you know, this quote unquote third world country and study this ancient form of medicine? So that's what I did when I went back to India. And my goal was to figure out, could I understand this Indian system of medicine and, and understand it from a Western perspective? Yeah, that, that came from your grandma, right? And all the stories right. that you hear about. Yeah, so my grandmother would tell me, and I saw her heal people. Yeah. So, so let's just take a little bit of, before we go, everyone uses the word system, right? The system is rigged, politicians say, right? The healthcare system, the transportation system. I mean, what other ways do we use the word system? Um. Uh, the political system, right? Uh, we use system in many, many different, but what is a system? So let's really understand what is a system. Now, if you open the back of a watch, you'll see all these gears, right? That's a system, but it's not any one gear. A system is an interconnection of components from which something emerges, which is bigger than any one component. That's what a system is. Okay. So a system is not any one part, but it's the interconnection of those parts when you put it together that something else emerges that is bigger than any one part. So for example, if you had a hundred different little gears and you put them together, well, you could get a watch. If you put those gears together, you could probably get a motor, right? You yeah. could get something else. But it's how those components are put together, one yields a watch. Um, another system is, if you, uh, and I shared this a lot in, uh, in, in, in my course, I'll, you know, I have this big picture of this very wild looking thing and I ask, what is that? And it's a space shuttle's engine. Typically people don't know what it is. It's got millions of parts, right? But what emerges out of that is this thing that let, lets us take off the Earth's gravity, right? So each part is would, a small could piece. be considered a system or no? That well, be. each part is a system. Yeah, that's what. But it's the interconnection of systems of systems. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So everything could be reduced almost to a system. Right. Way, but yeah. yeah. But uh, the interconnect. So what matters is the interconnections. Yeah. Okay. So the key was interconnections. If you were flying into LA or Boston, you look from the sky, you would see a system. 
you'd see the roadways, you'd see these lights, you'd see arteries, right? Um, it, that too is a system. A city is a system. Yeah. Um, if you were to go down to the microscopic level and you looked at a single cell, you'd see the nucleus, which is a system surrounded by a membrane, DNA, cytoplasm. That's a whole system, right? These are all systems. So just recognizing the interconnected parts. The interconnections, right? Um, in engineering, like right now, people talk about AI. We're trying to put together pieces to mimic us as a human system. Um, so the question is, do all systems have something in common? It's a very interesting question. So what's common about all these systems? And this is where I think we could start getting on the path to system thinking. So if we start recognizing, regardless if you look at the human body, regardless if you look at a computer, regardless if you look at the solar system, regardless if you look at an ant, um, you look at this microphone I'm talking into, um, what is common about all these systems? And what uh, you learn if you take a general systems theory course at MIT or in a science or an engineering course, and by the way, general systems theory is a field of engineering and science that came out in the 1930s. What you find out is every basic system, like the simplest system, has five components. An input, something goes into the system, something comes out of the system. So input and output, those are the two things. But then it has three other interesting components, which are called transport, conversion, and storage. What do I mean by that? So a system, when you send in the input, it transports be it the information, the matter, or uh, the energy. The input could be information, matter, or energy. Okay. So transported, there's some aspect of moving that through the system, movement. Another aspect of the system is conversion. So you have information, matter, or energy coming in, and it's converted into another form. And there could be multiple stages of conversion. Exactly. Yeah, yeah so in our case, you eat a physical... Uh, piece an apple goes down into your gut so it moves down your esophagus the aspect of movement and your stomach your small intestine digest that up they convert it into glucose which gives you energy right matter gets converted into energy then it's stored the third aspect of a system or the fifth aspect is storage somewhere it's stored so you have input and output transport conversion and storage um, these are the fundamental aspects of a system every basic system in the universe. I type in something into a keyboard, the input, the output, it shows up on the display. I open up a Word document, I'm typing, right? You see the character show up, input and output. Well, the typing is transporting electrons into the system, which are then converted to ones and zeros, which appear as, if you wrote hello world, on the computer. And that you can save on the computer, right? Storage aspect, you can save it on the RAM or you can save it on the hard drive, you see? You look at any um, aspect of existence, you can apply these five principles, anything. anything. It's pretty deep. This may seem very simple, but it's quite deep. Yeah. So you take a, um, a generator, you know? Um, the input to that is what, fuel? Diesel generator, you know, God forbid the lights go out in a building. You have diesel fuel, which is input, which is, by the way, stored in a thing. And then when the diesel generator starts up, it's transported into the engine, which converts that fuel into a rotational energy, which drives um, a mechanism where you can get electricity out of it. So matter is converted to electricity. Yeah. Got it? So 
input, output, transport, conversion, and storage. These are the elements of all basic systems. And you can apply it to anything. So a simple system is called an open system. Uh, I'll give you an example. You go to your home. Everyone uses this every day. When you walk into your home, what is that? Your light switch. You flip on the switch. And what does that do? It sends electricity, transports electricity through the wires. And when it hits the light bulb, the electricity is converted by the filaments into photons. So you get light. And that heat and that light are stored within that glass light bulb. Right? I mean, the heat is stored in there, and the output you get is light. Yeah. Okay? Um, a, a toaster. You put toast in. You press down the toaster. Electricity goes in. And that electricity is transported, and it's converted into the coils, which generates heat. The, it's typically stored for a temporary time in that casing until your toast heats up. And the output you get is you get a uh, nice toasted piece, right? So this is input, output, uh, transport, conversion, storage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you could even think about it in a much more simpler way. You're, you're sitting on the side of the street and you see an accident take place. Okay. So the input is these movement of matter, which is... Uh, gets converted to images, transported into your, through your retina, phototransduction takes place, those images get converted to images, I mean the, the light get converted to images, chemically, and stored in your brain as an image. So think about, uh, that's a form of storage, and um, uh, we all experience this. So input, output, transport, conversion, storage are the fundamental principles of every system. Yeah, and then output would be your view or thoughts on what just happened. Exactly, right exactly. You you interpret it in different yeah. ways, yeah, okay? Right. Now, these are the five basic elements of all systems. Now, if you took another more advanced course at MIT, and I'm going to distill this down in the next five minutes, so you don't have to do that, um, you would learn what I just shared with you are basic systems, the five principles of every basic system. However, there are four additional principles which are the basis of intelligent systems. Intelligent systems. So there's quote unquote dumb systems and smart systems. So would that include humans or is that what We'll talk saying? about that. So the issue is what is intelligence? So for example, I'll give it to you. You're sitting on, uh, on TV, Super Bowl games going on, and you suddenly see a picture of a hamburger show up at McDonald's, right? And it's juicy and, and they, you know, marketers do this. Yeah. So there's transport to so the input is this image. They're transporting that to you. Your body now will convert that image, right? And, and it also will store it somewhere. But the response may be you run out or you call, you know, Uber and you order McDonald's thing, right? Marketers survive on open systems. They want to hit you with an input and they want an output. Okay. So that the open system is you could uh, you can see what's happening. I guess. Open system is you can it's just on or off. You yeah. you send it thing in you get an output input output input output diesel generator is really you put diesel fuel in and out comes electricity right yeah um, and people can be like this what I would call dumb systems um, uh, we'll do a whole talk on AI on this to me that's really artificial intelligence meaning you input something into a system and it reacts a certain way. It's just working on a set of algorithms. It's firing off instructions. It's not thinking. Yeah. Um, so most human, a, a significant, I mean, I don't want to say most, but I think 
what makes a human being different is those people are driven by input and output. And then there are people who use intelligence. And we're going to talk about what, in, what an intelligence system is. Yeah. Somewhat well, deep. Do you think that uh, that's worse than ever now with like uh, technology and the internet and social media? People just like looking at something immediately. It right. It tr- triggers them or they have to immediate right. response to get something. Or right. So, so people say for pleasure or satisfaction. Right. Yeah. Right. So marketers know this, that I hit you with an input. I want you to get, I don't want you to think. Right? I want that information to flow to you. I, I want you to convert it in a certain way and I want you to store that memory. Right? And and uh, consumer packaged goods companies know know this very well. Yeah. And that probably started like really took off since the, the T V was created, right? T V and Edward 50s. Bernays model of advertising. Yeah. Right? So advertisers know systems theory, whether yeah. they uh, um, very good thriller or movie writers know systems theory. I'm going to, a lot of movies are formulaic. They know dot, 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 I do this, it's going to get this response out of you. Yeah, so like looking at narration. Exactly, because it's a series of inputs. Now, let's talk about, so what is an intelligent system? What makes a system intelligent? And so in system theory, one of the things you learn is control system theory. And this was the era of cybernetics. There was a guy called Norbert Wiener, and Norbert Wiener is known as the father of cybernetics. Um, Norbert Wiener, I think, went to MIT when he was 13 or 14, got his PhD when he was 17. Okay. Um, very, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, after he really came up with the theory of robotics, cybernetics, AI, he then said that it was the worst thing because he, he became a Luddite to some extent. He said that it would destroy human labor. Um, Norbert Wiener was one of the rare few scientists who would not work on the Manhattan Project out of MIT. Pretty much everyone else did. Yeah, he saw the consequences. He saw the consequences. Yeah. He was a very interesting guy. But the the notion of cybernetics or control systems theory was looking at in- intelligent systems. So if you have the basic system, which has those five elements, input, output, transport, conversion, and storage, right? You send an input, you get an output. So now the issue is, what is an intelligent system? And what an intelligent system has... Um, four things. One of the key things an intelligent system has is a goal. It has its own goal. Now, we can argue where does that goal come from, which is a very deep philosophical discussion, but it has a goal. And what it does is, so we have the goal, and what it does is it, it has an ability to take the output of what is actually taking place within itself, sense it, actually look at it for what it truly is. It's called a sensor. Okay. And then it says, okay, my goal is this, but my senses are saying what I'm actually doing is this. So there's a difference between where I want to go and what I'm actually doing. Now I'm going to make a calculation. That's called a controller or your mind makes a calculation saying, oh, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to keep heading in the wrong direction. So I'm going to correct myself and it calculates uh, a difference and it sends a new input into itself and and that'll go through transport convergence storage to generate a new output so it's, it's a feedback system yeah so you're visualizing the end effect of your action. exactly you're visualizing i want to go in this direction um uh, so a, 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 an example of this is an airplane an airplane has an intelligent control system in it called the autopilot do you know that most airplanes are 99 uh, uh, percent of the times off course Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you if an airplane you you tell it to go from 
Boston to San Francisco, it's not like it's one straight shot. Because the fourth element that it, that a, of an intelligence system is a disturbance. So the bottom line is that airplane, as I was saying, is off course 99% of the time. And so how does it stay on course? Because it is an intelligent system. So if you think about, as I mentioned, an airplane going from Boston to Baltimore, or Boston to San Francisco, choose a destination. The goal is a destination. And that goal is a particular longitude and latitude that you want to perfectly land at. Now, in order to go from Baltimore or Boston or wherever we start at to that destination, um, you're going to face all different kinds of disturbances. So think about when a plane is flying. It can have wind, storms, air, uh, headwinds, right? Uh, weather changes. These are all the disturbances that come in the way of that airplane reaching its destination. But in the midst of those disturbances, what the airplane does, it is constantly making adjustments to its system, monitoring the output, and constantly making small adjustments so it hits its goal. So if you look about it from a system standpoint, the airplane from the basic system, the input is what? To the system. It has multiple inputs in the case of the airplane. Fuel, right? Uh, it ha it's making adjustments to the uh, airplane wings, right? That give it height and lift and thrust. And then the output is it's on that heading to that location. But all those inputs that it gives affects the transport of fuel into the system, right? Which the engines convert. Uh, fuel is obviously stored. So that's a basic system. But the, the intelligence of the autopilot is, has a goal. I got to land at that location. So what it does is it has sensors. The airplane has sensors. It's altimeter, right? How fast it's growing. It has a bunch of sensors. Those are fed back into the controller, which is I want to go here. And you know what? I'm off course. So it makes an adjustment. New inputs. Lower the speed, increase the speed, adjust the elevation, and it has a new output, right? And through this constant process, um, it finally hits its goal pretty amazingly dead on. Yep. But during that process, if you were to actually look at it carefully, it was probably 99% off course. It's constantly making adjustments. Another simple example, everyone can understand a, a simple and intelligent system, is a thermostat in a home, right? A thermostat is a quite an intelligent system. The goal, I want to, you know, in this home now we want to, let's say, it's pretty hot, uh, 78 degrees hot, but let's say you want to be 78 degrees. You're from India and you're in the winter time and you want nice and hot in your home. Well, in order to get to 78 degrees, you need to know where you're at right now. So you have a ther thermometer. So if you look at the thermostat in your home, it's got two things in here. One is a readout, which tells you what the actual temperature is because it's measuring it. And inside that thermometer is a wire that goes down to your heating system that tells it whether to turn on the furnace or to turn it off, okay? So the way that works is, again, go to the basic system in your living room. Let's say you have hot water, a hot water heater. The input into that system is hot water that comes into that radiator. Um, and that hot water heater radiates that hot water into thermal heat which goes across a room. Which is conversion. Which is a conversion yeah. process. And down in your basement is a storage of that hot water, right? It's being stored. And on a need by basis, that's pumping stuff through there. So, and then you get the output of heat, right? Yeah. 
But when you have a goal like 78 degrees, what happens is there's a sensor which is measuring the actual heat. It says I want to hit 78 degrees. And there's typically what's called a controller, which is literally a valve, which tells how much, when to turn on the hot water and when to turn it off. That's why if you're in a home, you'll see the furnace going on and off, right? But if you actually look at that temperature, what's going on is you set it at 78 degrees. And let's say when you first start, the room is at like 70 degrees. The room will get to, let's say 77, right? And the hot water heater will say, keep it on because I need to go up higher. Sometimes it'll go actually over. It'll overshoot. It'll go to 80 degrees and then it'll turn off and then it'll come down. Maybe it'll go back to 77. It'll turn on. So my point is that in system theory, it's not about perfection. Yeah, You're say. always hovering around the goal. And what's even more interesting from a philosophical standpoint is the better your sensor is, and the better your controller is, it's not like you're going to go from um, 60 degrees to 90, back down to 60, back down to 90. You see, that's a very bad controller. But if you have a thermometer which only has 10 degree readings, you may do that. But if the thermometer has much more refined readings, you can measure 0.1 degrees, it'll be a very smooth transition. You'll be always around 78 degrees plus or minus 0.1 degree. Yeah. So what does that tell you? That tells you the sensors are important. Are you actually seeing things as they are? Because if not, you may be overshooting or undershooting your goal. Yeah, so it's not a very rigid process or a very loose process. It's like in the middle kind of, right? It, 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 what it is is you're constantly making adjustments. Yeah. So now, when you, the reason I'm bringing this up relative to the Indian concept or, in fact, want to go spiritually, what, what's happened with the world of spirituality um, is that uh, people set a goal. I want to be an enlightened being, like in the New Age world. And then there's a guru. And he's telling you, oh, uh, uh, you haven't achieved perfection yet. So you must give me more money. You must stay in my ashram and do whatever I want, whatever that is. You know, you can, all the illicit things. Yeah. So there's control now by a guru. The person has given up his control because he's been sold this wrong bill of goods that the goal is perfection. No system ever hits perfectly 78 degrees. You're always hovering. So the goal is not about perfection. It's about constantly sensing and adjusting. And this is true in all life. Yeah. Right? That plane is 99% off. That's okay, though. But the important thing is it's constantly adjusting. And, and the, so the issue comes down to are we committed to our goal? And are we willing to go every day, every minute to constantly make those adjustments? Because in reality, intelligent control systems always live in the face of disturbances. So why? So in summary, when you want to really look at this, what we're saying is that the... The, from a Western perspective, all systems, every basic system can be characterized by what? Input, output, transport, conversion, and storage. An intelligent system is, uh, is it has these four other elements. A goal, which it sets for itself. It has a sensor, which is able to observe, is it on track or not to its goal? It has a controller, which makes adjustments to the input to that system. But all of this is done in the face of disturbances. Because yeah. the reality is we all face disturbances each day. You want to achieve a certain weight. Let's say you're 200 pounds, you want to get down to 180. Well, think about the, so you've set a goal. First thing is, are you actually sensing yourself? Are you, sit, are you in the right mirror? Do you have a right weight scale? Because you don't, want to, you don't want to have the weight scale misadjusted because you may think you're doing well when you're not. So the sensor has to be right. 
are you making the right decisions for yourself? If you want to get down from 200 to 180, what are the inputs you're putting into your system? Well, you're not going to get there by eating ice cream all day, right? You're not going to get there by eating a garbage food. Yeah. You have to make the right inputs. And then you have to check the output, which means you have to have the right sensor. Anorexia is an example of where the person looking in the mirror has a bad sensor. They think that they're constantly fat when they're not. Yeah. And so that's, that's a sensor issue. In a way, influenced from society, right? Right. right. So, the, so all of these elements, we can get into deeper discussion, what, what influences them. Yeah. So this was the Indian system. I mean, this was the Western control system theory. So basically, I've taught you probably three years of MIT in the, in the last 15 minutes. But you have basically learned control system yeah. theory. Why does it take so long for them to teach this, you think? Three years, I mean... A little bit too much. There's a lot of reasons I have for this. First of all, there's not a incentive in academia to teach things in a shortened way. Think about you go to college for four years. It's a money-making venture. My views are I could probably distill the basic engineering education probably to less than three months. I would probably teach people linear algebra, control systems theory. Uh, you could do it in, you know, but the issue is someone's come up with this business model of four years yeah what i just taught you you know this is a distillation of 20 years and i'm proud of what i've been able to do is to distill this down and to break a lot of these rules that academics do not want to make it easy frankly when i used to do scientific papers right if you read journal papers sometimes they use big words and they make it purposely obfuscated yeah which is i'm using that word purposely it's a big sounding word all that means is they make it confusing because ideas if you use bigger words and et cetera, you must be doing some great science. Yeah. Okay? I mean, there is a racket here. It's another podcast. Yeah. Now, so I basically tell you control. So I, I go to India and I'm trying to figure out what is this Indian system of medicine. And I was literally at an ashram, you know, reading through ancient books and because a lot of this stuff in the Indian medicine, I had this aha moment. Because in the Indian system of medicine, remember I mentioned, you've probably heard of these words like karma, right? Yeah. You go to a yoga class, everyone says karma and namaste and all this stuff. But a lot of these people don't know what these words really mean. If I mentioned to you earlier, in the Indian system of medicine, they have vata, pitta, kapha. So in the Indian system of medicine, when they look at your body, Marcelo, the first thing the Indian physician does is they characterize your body type. Oh, they say Marcelo has a lot of vata, a lot of pitta, a little bit of kapha. Or Shiva has a lot of vata, a lot of pitta and not that much kapha. I may be similar to you. Yeah. Or someone else may be no vata, no pitta, a lot of kapha. So they are characterizing your body almost like a genotype. Yeah. And then based on that, they will tell you what foods you should eat. Now, here's a problem. You go to an Indian physician and you say, what is vata, pitta, kapha? I'm a Westerner. Explain it to me. It sounds like mumbo jumbo. Like, it sounds like mumbo jumbo. Like spiritual, like fake. Yeah. Exactly. It, right. Like fake Indian. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren so um, they can't explain it yeah right so uh, therefore people walk away say this is a bunch of nonsense yeah the Western uh, even the open-minded Western physician says this is garbage I I can't understand it yeah I mean you tell this to a doctor if a doctor says this to a patient nowadays like it would be like what are you telling me like yeah (laughs) right so Indians so so by the way yoga now 30 million people practice yoga in America 36 million people one out of every 10 people have felt yoga. Ayurveda or Indian medicine, which was also brought to India around the same time, never took off. And my views because no one understood this terminology, even though it has a lot of validity. So I had this aha moment. And what I said was, wait a minute. 
Vatha, Pitta, and Kapha are the same as transport, conversion, and storage. And input and output are karma and karma fall. Okay, let me explain this. When you've heard of the word karma, what do you think it is? Um, if you do something bad, eventually it's going to come back. Right. So you sort of partially got it. You do something, something happens. Action, reaction. What karma really means is action. Yeah. If you look at the actual word of karma, it means action. And you can take right action or wrong action. Right input or wrong input. Now, there's another word in Sanskrit called karma fall. Fall, P-H-A-L, is the fruits of karma. Fruits of your action. Does that sound like output? Yeah. So karma is input, what action you take. Karma falls the fruits of your input, which is your output. So the world of yoga and the world of medicine had been separated. So I said, wait a minute, karma and karma fall are input and output, which is, comes from the world of Indian yoga, spiritual systems. Yeah. And vata, pitta, and kapha are conversion I mean, transport, conversion, storage. Because if you look at the Indian text, vata is all those aspects of motion, movement. So in the Indian medicine system, they say he has having a vata problem could be a issue with transport, bowel. Okay? Pitta issues are related to digestion, conversion. Kapha issues are related to like structural issues or storage. Like if you have too much fat, storage. Okay? Okay. You're not storing memory right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I was able to have this very interesting insight because I believe I looked at it from an engineering approach. And no one had ever written about this. So my conclusion was the basic systems from, if you look at the Indian terminology, was karma was input, karma fall was output, and vata, pitta, and kapha were transport, conversion, storage. Now, it gets even more interesting. So if you start studying Indian esoteric yoga, you find that there's four other terms, sankalpa, manas, indriyas, and vikaras. So sankalpa was the goal that a teacher would give to the student or the student would discover for himself through their own practice. And it could be very simple. I don't want to get too esoteric about it. Basically, the goal could be I want to make a lot of money. The goal could be I want to lose weight. The goal could be I want to be a great journalist. The goal could be, I want to be a great scientist, but it's the mission that you choose. It could be a mission for a few days, or it could be a mission for a year, it could be a, for a lifetime. So that was your goal. And you went through the process of understanding where you are at today, which is your karma fall, the actual state of where you're at. Like, what did all your actions brought you to today? And the way you assess your karma fall or your output was through your indriyas, your senses. You used your five senses, right? smell, touch, etc., to understand where you were. And then you would use your mind, which was the manas, to make decisions to affect your karma, which is your actions. And all of this was done in the fate of different vikaras, disturbances. So if you think about spiritually, someone like Buddha, his, his, his um, purpose in life was to become an enlightened being. And if you look at it, he didn't suddenly just become an enlightened being. If you read like books like Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, he went through a process he made mistakes. You know, you go around this feedback process. He thought, oh, the way I become an enlightened being is I should just become an ascetic. Go into the forest, put myself through penances, not eat anything, you know, um, do all these harsh penances. So that was a karma he took on those actions. And what he found that the result of that was that he was just becoming, he thought he was better than others. He thought he was, he realized he was becoming more egotistical. Okay. 
And, and, but he was able to sense that. So then he took a different tack. He thought, oh, maybe we should just be fully experienced life, like be a lustful human being. So he went in that direction, right? Just like going from 68 degrees to 90 degrees. Yeah. And then through that process, he realized to have compassion for people, right? So he went through this iterative process, constantly making adjustments in the midst of all of these disturbances. And then, you know, it said the Buddha achieved enlightenment or nirvana, right? Now, that's a process we all go through. You, you want to uh, 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 stop smoking. That's your goal. Well, it's not going to happen overnight, but you have to have a commitment to that goal. So you're saying, okay, what, what's my karma fall, my appa? Well, I'm, I'm still smoking 20 packs a day. Okay, I'm going to go do some, I don't know, uh, different type of meditation. Okay, now I'm at two packs a day. Oh, great. I'm heading in the right direction. Let me continue that. Well, that's now petered me out of two. I'm going to have to add other things. Maybe I get, I don't know, a Nicorette patch. Maybe I add hypnosis. So you're sending different inputs into your system and um, you're finding whether you're going to achieve that goal. Now you may have vicaras, disturbances. You have a bunch of friends who smoke all the time. Now you're back up to 20 packs a day. Well, you may decide I may need to change my friends, right? So this is a process of intelligent systems. So what's fascinating is when I looked at this um, what, and I laid them side by side, what I had realized I discovered a Rosetta Stone, just like the stone which was able to decipher hieroglyphics. I was able to decipher the Indian system of medicine, which had karma, karma fa, vata, pitta, kapha, sankapa, manas, indriyas, vikars. If I just told you that, you'd think this is some wacky new age, some weird witch doctor system of India, but if I told you karma is input, karma fall is output, vata is transport, pitta is conversion, kapha is storage, sankalpa is goal, manas is controller, indriyas is sensor, and vikaras is disturbance. And I were to tell you that what the Indian rishis, scientists were actually doing, was viewing the entire world as a control system, as an intelligent system. And they had come to this conclusion because they didn't, maybe they didn't know genes and atoms and proteins, but they realized that you needed to have a language for understanding complex systems. And that's what we do in engineering. In engineering, we use input, output, transport, conversion, storage, controller, sensor. This is how we built the space shuttle. This is how we get satellites up. This is how we build temperature. All the modern conveniences we have come from engineering systems theory. Yeah. And so the discovery I'd made was that across East and West, science and tradition, ancient and modern, was this common view of viewing the world as a system and that that intelligent systems had feedback control systems. Yeah. The words may have been different, but they were fundamentally the same. In fact, when I got back from India, I started teaching this as a course at MIT, where in a, in a room I would have, um, uh, I did it as a lecture series. On one side, I would have your traditional MDs, PhDs, engineering people, and on the other side, I had your yoga people, and typically they'd both come in and look at each other cross-eyed, but after I started teaching these concepts, I brought them to a common unity, an integrated view of the world. Yeah, and that was your intent um, in doing this, right? In, right. In trying to bridge, bridge these Eastern worlds. and Western medicine right. together. But at a fundamental level, trying to bridge these worlds. Some people have used the word integrative medicine, but their integrative medicine has no integration. It's just a nice word. This was really a way to integrate both these worlds. 
And the end goal being to create healthier humans. Right? Well, well, one goal we st see what the the real subtlety of all this is. I think the ancient people realized that there were these fundamental principles of all systems, and what they did was, um, and you have to listen carefully. It is what they realized was let's use the human body as a vehicle to understand these principles. So health would be a result, but that wasn't the end state. You were using your body as a lab to understand these things actually playing themselves out. You have action, you have results of action. You have transport of information, matter, and energy, transport vata. You have the conversion of things. You have the storage. You have goals. You have a mind which can make rational decisions. Yeah. And But the idea was to use your body. Now, you would use your body to achieve health. But once you understood that, you could also understand how the planets worked how the weather worked, because all of these were systems. I see. Okay. You see, so it's a very interesting thing. It wasn't just to get stuck at being narcissistic about taking care of the body. But using this approach was the beginning of understanding how to understand the world as a system. And to not be stuck in that reductionist. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, the end result of this is the reason, you know, I had finished my degree in systems biology at MIT in 2007, but I realized Western biology was finally coming to realize they needed to go non-reductionist. But they didn't really have a system. So my point was, look, the Indians actually had a systems biology. They called it Siddha and Ayurveda. So why don't we learn? But in that system, their whole notion was the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So which means a right input, for the right system, because everyone had a different vata, pitta, kapha, and it was timed because where were they in that process? So it's like personalized for each Personal, one. Yeah. Precision medicine, we call it today. And how did you, so you came back from India and you uh, shared all this um, research and you I started did. teaching class. What I was, started teaching. What was the response? Was well, the response was people loved it. So okay. I went to the head of the, this was in 2008, eight nine at that time. I came back and I offered... I went to the, the head of the department, Doug Laufenberger, and I said, look, Doug, I, I want to teach this as a course. And he said, well, you know, I don't even know if people will be interested in this. But he goes, if more than 30 people show up, we'll do it as a lecture series. Then I will make it a course. You know, we'll have to bring it up to the faculty. So we ended up having 100, 200 people show up, Marcelo, on a Thursday night for three hours. And I, I developed these series of classes. At the end of that... Uh, semester, I went back to Doug Laufenberger and I said, Doug, look, here are the reviews. So they took it up to vote and I was voted down three to two. Because a traditional biological engineering department, which are from Big Pharma, they were concerned about this, right? Because I'm bringing a whole new way of looking at medicine. So anyway, I, I because I own the copyright materials to my own lectures, I converted that to a series I call Systems Health. And I started... Uh, putting that in my own institute as a course. And the interesting thing was Deepak Chopra, you know, who sort of uh, came from India, tried to do the Ayurveda thing, didn't really take off. And then, um, but he loved my stuff. And I ended up selling my course at his events at $2,700 a pop. And he got jealous of me because he was losing revenue. Very interesting journey. So I ended up just doing it as my own course here in Cambridge. We took it online. And now we offer this essentially for nothing. Yeah. Okay. And then if people want to get certified, we charge a couple hundred bucks and they can actually teach it. So what I've done is my goal was to really convert this into a model to teach other people. So did you get any pushback from um, 
doctors or biologists saying, oh, um, this is all mumbo jumbo. Like, what are you No, because I had taken a very solid approach. You see, everything's grounded. So that's what's powerful about this stuff. People, in fact, said, wow. You, um, give you an example. There was a, uh, the beginning of this year, there was a big meeting at Harvard Medical School. 1,500 of the physicians, Indian Ayurvedic people came, and I had 15 minutes standing ovation at the end of it. Because no one had seen someone really integrate this in a rational way. It's, it becomes irrefutable because truth is truth. Because this is grounded on the scientific method. It's got, right? Well, guided on the scientific method. It's just the language is different. Yeah. The, Indians call, the problem is the Indian gurus had taken advantage of the Indian people putting their yellow robes instead of calling karma. Karma is basically action. So in a way, you're kind of providing, uh, I get more context or more of a, a holistic way of viewing things, but also applying it to lessons in life, not only in, like in just like making machines or, you know, I mean, it's also- You can apply it to anything. Cool. Yeah, right. Anything so else. I wrote a book called The Science of Everything, which I discuss this. Okay. You know, and I wrote another book called System and Revolution because what this does is it starts giving you an approach to look at and understand things in a deep way. Yeah. Uh, you start understanding that solutions come through integration or collaboration through cooperation and through combination. I call it the three C's. Collaboration, cooperation, combination. Similar to like what we were talking about in the last episode where you are saying real innovation came from uh, you being allowed to innovate right. going in the, in the lab and uh, right. I guess like decentralized way, right? It wasn't controlled from one guy. To exactly. Like, you have to do this, you have to do that. Exactly. It, it, so um, yeah, it was, a, it was the integration and collaboration of elements that wasn't part of the military industrial complex yeah. it was a collaboration of a loving parent uh you know a dedicated teacher as well as a um a uh you know a uh, a mentor that's yeah. where innovation came from so you inventing email like we talked about in the previous episode was also based on this like systems approach right yeah if you fundamentally look at it uh email itself is a system it's not this reductionist thing of simply exchanging text messages. It was an entire system. And when people understand that it was a system, inbox, outbox, folders, had to have all of these interconnected components, and you needed all of those components to make it email. If you don't have an inbox, I'm sorry, you don't have email. Yeah. You have to, and if you don't have, you have to have the inbox, the outbox, the BCC, that's what makes email, email. Simply exchanging text messages, not email. That's simply the exchange of text messages. I'm not claiming to have invented that. I created the integrated system, email as we know it. And what's even more important is the creation of that system took pl place in an integrative environment. And it wasn't uh, driven by war. Yeah. It was driven by the desire to create. And it was done in an environment of collaboration, cooperation, and combination of multiple technologies. So that's what's fascinating. You know, what I've just shared with you uh, this integration of Eastern and Western medicine again took place because I was able to combine and bridge the worlds of Western systems theory to Indian Ayurveda and Siddha. And that is what I also invented into a new curriculum called Systems Health. And so, uh, you know, Systems Health, uh, we're very proud of that because we're able to now take doctors and conventional people plus the woo woo people and bring them together and actually give them both even deeper principles, which neither of them had, and also bridge those worlds. So um, part of 
I think the important thing to understand is that the invention of email was not the only thing I did. You know, it was sort of the beginning of my journey to invention and systems. Uh, systems Health. We'll talk about Echo Mail. But what I want to talk about, since we're on this thing about health, is Cytosol. Cytosol was one of my latest inventions that came out of my PhD work at MIT. But that too is based on a systems approach. Um, and the problem we were trying to address there is, you know, when my grandmother, you know, looked at you. Uh, and she made understood your vata pitta kapha or your transport conversion stories. Now that you understand that, she would figure out how you were disturbed when you were off balance, and she would try to make particular combinations for you. Now the combination is the key. It wasn't just one medicine. Like if you get a inflammation today, people take Advil, ibuprofen. If you look at the back of ibuprofen, it's a single drug. It's a synthetic drug. You can't find that in nature. That molecule does not exist in nature. In these systems of medicine, they combined natural compounds that exist in nature. And they put them together and they deliver it to you. When you have chai tea, it's a combination of multiple compounds. When you have curry at any meal, it's a combination of herbs. But Western medicine doesn't know how to do combination. It's very good if you have a particular issue to get you back on the battlefield, right? Yeah. So if you have a headache or you have massive inflammation, boom, take Tylenol or Advil. And it does work. And it doesn't necessarily look at the side effects. It doesn't look at the side effects. It doesn't care because it goes to get you back on the battlefield, get you back into work, get you back on the machine line so you can start working again. Now, the way they figure out, and we call that a compound, a synthetic compound. And this is distinguished from an herb, which is made up of many compounds. So it's a synthetic compound. So how do they do drug development? What is the system for, what is the current drug development system? Well, just to give you an idea, that system takes 13 years, um, about $5 billion. How does that work? So let's say, Marcelo, you are a scientist at MIT, and in your lab, you're working away for 10 years, and you, you're looking at this compound. One day, you find that this compound in a test tube of cancer cells kills those cancer cells. So that's the beginning. The day you discover that compound, you will go file a patent. Now that patent, the day you file it, has a ticker on it, 20 years, until that patent is useless, meaning it goes public. So within, so you're trying to take your compound and make it a drug, which means get it allowed by the Food and Drug Administration so others will consume it. Now in order to do that, first you will do more test tube testing, which will take you another more years to validate in fact works. If you make it, through, that's called in vitro screening. If that works, then you'll go do animal testing, like in an actual animal, a rabbit, a mouse, monkey, whatever. And you'll kill a bunch of animals at different dosages. So you'll take that compound, go, you're trying to figure out how much can you give it that it actually works, let's say gets rid of the cancer, but doesn't give too much that it kills a person. So in drug development, you're working on two axes, toxicity and efficacy. You wanna give enough that it's efficacious, but you don't want to give too much that it kills you. Yeah. Okay? So you'll do that in animals. All right? So, so that'll it, take another three years. Oh, okay. That seems like a long process. Is that necessary? Like, well, that's the know. current process. Yeah. Why do they do this? Because they really don't know what's actually going on when you take that compound. Yeah. They don't understand all the chemical reactions. You eat that, then it, you. what they're doing is you get the input, the karma, they're just looking at the karma fall. They're not looking at how it transports through, what is the conversion mechanisms, what's the storage, all those details are hidden. So they just do an input and they look at an output. 
Okay. So even after they do this, like after 20, 13 years. Well, well, well this takes around six years. That's called preclinical testing. In a test tube and in an animal, it's called in vivo. Once you do that, you get data. Now you go to the FDA and you fill out what's called an IND, an investigational new drug. You know, two to five, 10,000 pieces of paperwork with lawyers. And you give them all this data. You say, hey, look, I've tested on animals. I think I found the right dosage. And I'm ready to go to human testing. The FDA reviews that six, seven months. And they say, okay, or not. I'm going to allow you, it's called an allowance, to go to human trials. That's called clinical trials. And that's where they pay people to test. uh, Right, right. And those trials are phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase one is a small set of human beings. Phase two is more. And phase three is a lot of people. You have to be successful in phase one to go to phase two, phase two to be successful in phase three. That may take another nine years, seven years. How successful are people in that phase usually? Is it do a lot of people? It's a great great question. So phase one. So so basically, if the FDA gives you allowance, now you can test on a small group of human beings. Only 20% of the things that ever go into phase one make it. That kind of worries me for the humans that are testing these drugs. It's like, what happens to them? Well, that's why they do it in third world countries and, you know... Oh, I didn't even know. Yeah, that. They, okay. yeah, <laughs> right. That's another podcast. whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so if it makes it phase one, then they'll do it in phase two and phase three. Now, what comes out of that is a single drug, a compound, and it'll ha- and and the FDA will allow it if it's efficacious and it's low toxicity as long as you say all the side effects. That's why when you watch these shows on primetime TV, there's a drug and they say it works, but we're aware this can happen, this can happen, this can happen. Your nose may fall off. Your yeah. eyeballs can happen, but At it will work to keep end. your beard on, yeah. right? I mentioned it super fast, yeah. right? So, but the bottom line is, let's say that takes thirteen years, and but remember, patent life is what twenty years. So now you have seven years to recoup your investment. So if you spend five billion dollars, and maybe the market for your drug is only a hundred thousand people. So you're going to have to price that drug at least at $50,000 to make your cost back. Yeah. $250,000 to make profit, operational costs, right? The, the, the reason the costs of drugs are high is, first of all, the development process is very costly. Yeah. And they have to be aware of liability. So the bottom line is when I looked at this, I said, this, is, this doesn't make any sense because it's all going into it like a black box. You give an input, you get an output. It's sort of dumb. You're not really understanding the control system here. So... Um, and in fact, if from an engineering perspective, the way drug people work is it's like you have a new design for an airplane. You don't really know how the airplane works. You throw the pilot in. If he fails, you say, shit, he died. If he succeeds, then later on you explain why that wing worked, like after the fact. Yeah. So it's not even rational drug development. It's rationalized drug development. Yeah. And that airplane could be the human in a way, right? It's like it could go wrong and it's not. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, in this case, the airplane is the drug that you're testing. It's the yeah. design. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the reason this occurs is, again, if you peel away the system of research, um, well, let's look at the input, output, transport, conversion, storage, and the research system. Let's understand that. So academic research. Um, if you're a researcher, what's the input you get? You need to get funding. And the output you get is you're supposed to produce papers. Yeah. And the more papers you produce, the more funding you get. The more citations. The more get. citations, etc. Yeah. And so if you're a researcher, it's like uh, the story of Buddha tells about the king who brings the six blind men in. And there's an elephant. 
each of the blind men is asked to touch the different parts of the elephant and tell what they see. So the guy who touches the tusk says he sees a spear. The guy who touches the 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 head, the uh, the you know the tusk, not the tusk, the uh, what is that thing called? Its nose. Yeah, the nose. Yeah. Uh, it says it's a snake. The guy who touches its tail uh, says it's a rope, etc. Right? They all have their view. So if the elephant represented cancer in academic medicine, people are touching the parts and they have their own viewpoint. It could be a blinded viewpoint. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because the input in thing is get funding, you know, transport your graduate students through, you know, build up, store your archive of papers and convert those papers into more funding. Yeah. Okay. That's the research model. And solving cancer and Alzheimer's, well, that's a secondary thought. And a lot of people don't know this. So the entire system is a very short-term perspective because once you get tenure, then you, you, have, you essentially have a job for life. So these academics do not work together. So if you and I are working the, in the two different labs in the same university and both get cancer funding, I'm not gonna share my data with you because I wanna win the Nobel Prize. I wanna get my graduate students, Yeah. right? So they don't collaborate, they don't cooperate, they don't integrate their research, okay? And that's how it's always been. It's always been that because the incentive is to get funding, get your graduate students, win the Nobel Prize, and get your title at at Harvard, right? And even with medicine, it's the same thing. Yeah, well, well, think about it, right? So the results of this are this. You know, today, I mean, if you look at the, the actual results, year over year, we spend 30% year over year in new R&D. Now, you would think if you spend more and more money every year, you're gonna, you should get 30% more and more new drugs. Well, the reality is if you actually looked at the graph, we spend increase in spending in medical research, which we're actually finding less and less medicines. The system is broken. Yeah. This is what politicians don't know. They don't even talk about this. And that is what's resulting in high healthcare costs, a major part of it. The entire process of innovation is stuck on a bunch of academics who, are, who have made a racket out of research. So it's basically they're not collaborating with each other and they're looking at everything in a reductionist way. In the way. reductionist way, and right. In a, in a holistic way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they pretty you much like they need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. But the incentive is not there. Yeah, you see, the so now go to the intelligence system. What is the goal of research? Is the goal of research to make sure XYZ professor gets wins a Nobel Prize? Or is the goal of research to make sure that we lower the cost of healthcare? Yeah. The goal of Harvard Medical School, I would argue, is not to solve the healthcare crisis. The goal of them, Harvard Medical School or MIT, is to get research dollars, billions coming in. And the people involved, uh, they almost know this as well, in a way, right? Do you think they're, they're caught in the racket? They know it. They know it quite well. It's almost like someone looking at it like from a, a different perspective, saying, "Hey, why can't you guys just collaborate? These are human beings that are dying. Like these are like part of your people. You, can, right. you all can't get together and try to make like better innovations and solve everything together, right? It's you almost think like people would just step back and ask this basic question, but right? You, like." Well, the reason is all of this is shrouded in a priesthood. It's like a religion, right? These are supposed to be the elites. We sure are supposed to bow down to them. Um, and so if you look at the, the journal, so if you and I are both, you know, you have, uh, if you and I both join Harvard at the same time, we finished our PhDs, we got our first entry-level professorship. We have seven years to get tenure. You and I are competing because yeah. maybe only one tenure professor job in biology 
You're publishing your papers, I'm publishing my papers. After seven years, what the committee looks at is not how many papers you publish, that's important, but how many other people cited your papers. Yeah. You may publish 100 papers, I may publish 100. I may publish one paper, but 1,000 people cite my work, but no one cites your work. Guess who's gonna get tenure? I am. Yeah. Because I made a fundamental discovery, or what's happened, this was the original notion, but what's happened now is people learn how to kiss ass. It's a kiss ass. So one guy may do amazing work, but he hasn't kissed ass. The other guy goes and goes to all the parties, hung, hangs out, whatever scrap. And so he gets those people to cite his work. Just because like, they're buddy buddies with them. Yeah. Whatever. They, they have favors. Yeah. It's nepotism. Yeah. So what you, what you have is journal papers. Uh, so uh, a guy called Randy Sheckman, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine, the few months or weeks after he won the Nobel Prize, he said, I'm not gonna publish any more of the journals. He goes, it's all a racket, and he admitted, he confessed. The whole thing is a racket. So yeah. so the point is that I've always felt you need a revolution in this. Yeah. You know, uh, as I shared with you before, you know, the invention of email was a revolution. And as we've talked about, you know, when I started doing that work, it was about integrating computing and biology. Computers were one place, biologists were together. And so email was basically a way to integrate the entire inner office mail system. So when I looked at this problem, I took a systems approach because email taught me about systems as a young kid. And the, and, and the, the reason um, that I took this approach was because when you look at the human body and when you look at drug development, when you look at healthcare, they treat everything as parts in a reductionist way. So everything's incented to just study the part. And the biggest example of this is how people actually looked at the genome, okay? Uh, somewhere around the mid-90s, um, the failings of Western medicine or Western biology really started to appear. Up until, you know, the discovery of DNA took place in the 1950s. Um, in the 1990s, people said, let's sequence a human genome. Sequencing meaning that the genome uh, you know, as you know, you have the double-stranded DNA helix, which we discovered in the, in the 50s. And the theory was that if you look at DNA, pieces of the DNA are pieces of software programs coding for certain features. So one piece of DNA codes for your eye color. Another piece of DNA codes whether uh, you can metabolize alcohol or not, like American Indians, Native Americans can't, right? Okay. Another piece of DNA says how long your nose is going to be, right? Etc. These are called genes. Now, at that time, we knew a worm had around 20,000 genes. So immediately, um, biologists assume, wow, a human being's far more complex than a worm. So they assume, oh, we must have a lot more genes, right? So how many, so in the 1990s, uh, people thought we had close to a half a million genes before the Genome Project started. They had no idea of how many genes we had. But the assumption was, wow, we're more complex so much more smarter than a little worm, we must have more genes, which means more parts. And we have like more unique features. More unique features, etc. But this assumption is based on what? A non-systems-based approach of the body. More parts, more complexity. Okay. I'll repeat that again. More parts, more complexity. Right? Which means a worm, we knew a worm only had 20,000 genes. Human beings more complex, it must have a lot more genes. Yeah. You follow? But the irony of the Genome Project was that every year they went, so like for example in 1993, the count was only 80,000 genes. 
They re, they said oh, they brought it down from half a million to eighty. Then they weren't finding there. Then they reset the estimate to fifty thousand genes in nineteen ninety six, and in two thousand they reset it to twenty eight. And to, by the time the genome project ends in two thousand three, guess how many genes we have, Marcelo? Uh, I'm guessing same as a worm. Right? We have the same number of genes, yeah. around twenty thousand genes. In fact, plants have more genes than we do. Really? I didn't yeah, because think about a plant. It has to actually plant has to stay still and it has to survive. The bottom line you is think it would have less because it's less complex. Exactly, exactly. But so what this showed us was the number of parts is not related to complexity. Okay. So if I so what so if I gave you five balls, and I had five balls, right? Same number of balls, let's say, but I could interconnect them in very different ways. One way you could interconnect those five balls just in a linear sequence, just like a bunch of beads, one after the other. Another way is I could interconnect them in a circle. Very, it's a little more complex. Another way is I could take four of them interconnected, put one in the center, and connect to that, so, and then connect all of them. Yeah. Far more complex. So how you connect them is where complexity comes from. So what people realize is, remember, basic biology, which we can do another podcast, and genes give rise to proteins, those proteins feed back and they make all different reactions. So it's all these interconnections. So what makes us complex is not the number of genes, but all the interconnections of between the proteins. genes and the proteins. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like, um, that's what makes us complex. Yeah. So, so those are called molecular pathways. Okay. So that led into a field called systems biology. So to, that's why I decided to come back to MIT in 2003. I always wanted to do medicine, but really hated this reductionism. And finally, I saw a little opening in Western science where people are saying, hey, something's wrong. If we want to understand the whole human being, it's not just the genes. We have to connect the genes to the proteins, the cells, the organs. We have to do an interconnected approach, systems biology. Yeah. And at that same time in 2003, a big challenge took place by the National Science Foundation, which was, could you mathematically model the whole human cell? So what we were doing was saying, okay, if, if, if you take basic biology of the cell, the cell outside has a big membrane like a wall, you know, like a border wall. <laughs> inside of it is a cytoplasm where all the reactions take place. Yeah. And inside of the cytoplasm is a nucleus where the DNA sits. So up until 2003, we had thought there's a center to the cell. Like everything is about DNA, the centralized concept of biology. DNA is the king, and the king tells all the subjects what to do, all the other molecules. But like we were saying, it's the interaction between the proteins exactly. that really matter. Right. So it's the interaction between the The DNA, turns out, is storage. The cytoplasm is where conversion takes place, the reactions, like the big soup. And then the edge of the cell is where all the transport takes place. Things are going in and out. Yeah. Okay. okay? Transport, conversion, and storage also occur in the cell. So the issue is DNA is not everything. We had put this very much like the organizational model. Oh, the CEO's office is everything. Or a notion that the central government is everything. We, you know, or the academics at MIT and Harvard are the smart people. They're the yeah. brains and they tell everyone else to do. And that's where quote unquote innovation comes from. Right? That's right, that's where innovation comes from. Like, so what it turns out is DNA is merely storage of a program. But that doesn't mean you're going to be just because of your DNA. Yeah. So it turns out it's a reactions. 
So the issue was, suppose we can mathematically understand all the reactions for any type of disease or for the whole cell. Imagine if we could map out all those chemical reactions biochemically, convert them into, into equations and model them, then theoretically we could model very complex reactions. Like we could model cancer on the computer. We could model Alzheimer's long before we did the test tube testing, yeah. long before we killed a bunch of animals, long before we even bothered testing on humans. And by the way, to give you an analogy, this is how we build airplanes, right? We don't build airplanes in the United States, in anywhere in the world anymore by just throwing a test pilot in. We have the computer, we understand the physics, we can model the wind and everything, and then we, if, we, if someone comes up with a new design, we do it on the computer. If it breaks and all, we're not gonna even bother building a model of it. If it works, then we go build a model, we do it in a wind tunnel, and then we go build it and we test, test pilots. So my theory was, suppose I could build a new technology that could mathematically model complex functions, yeah. like the whole cell. Do you, is this getting into AI and medicine, or do you think, in a way, or no? It, it is, it, it uses aspects of AI, but it yeah. even uses up something even more better than AI. AI is always based on correlations. Uh, we'll do another talk on it, but this is actually based on the mechanistic understanding. It's better than AI. Okay. Okay? In some sense, and I'll explain that in another talk. It's too deep to get into right now. Yeah. But the point is that over those four years back at MIT, I created a new technology, a new systems technology that can look at a body of literature, let's say Alzheimer's. So let's say there's 20,000 papers written on Alzheimer's. If you read any of those papers, you will see them, each of those papers, give like the blind man a little piece of the discovery. They'll say, oh, Alzheimer's caused by this chemical reacting of this chemical to get this chemical, and they'll publish that. Someone else may have another piece of the jigsaw puzzle. So we're able to do what cytosol is look at the literature, extract out the, the papers that are relevant, okay? Then from that, extract out the little molecular pieces, and then interconnect them together. So what we're, we're not saying it's perfect, but based on the known science, we're to able to take all those blind men's little pieces of views and bring them together. Yeah, you're starting the foundation almost for it to grow. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's an architecture. Yeah. So we call it a systems architecture of disease. So this was your goal from the very start. Before very starting is I want to do this and then you start right. getting into the coding. Exactly. Of it. Yeah. Right. So this was a goal. Then I built, I wrote the software code, just like I wrote the software code for email. I wrote, started writing the software code for Cytosolve. So if email was the electronic version of the entire inner office mail system, Cytosolve was a way to model the entire inner molecular communication system. So what we were able to do was create an infrastructure or a technology that I could look at any disease, understand the different pieces, and build a framework for interconnecting that together. That was Cytosolve. How hard was it? To do that like it took four or five years, years of coding i'm guessing a lot of disturbances a lot of disturbances <laughs> yeah. uh so the disturbance you had was when i put my committee together we had some professor saying you can't do this this is impossible to do very much like when i created email yeah. right <laughs> um because many of those professors were either from the biology or computer science very few of them had worked in in um you see, when I built another company called EchoMail, we were integrating for large companies or multiple subsystems. And that's the way I saw this at. The problem with academics is they are, 99% of them are on a linear path. They get their PhD, you know, they do their undergraduate, then they do their masters and their PhD. They rarely ever have to ever go make something, build a company. Yeah. So they, when I came back from 
working, I was in and out. My advisor said, don't talk about your entrepreneurial efforts because they'll poo-poo it. Because there's a thing saying, those who can't do, teach. Yeah. Okay? So there's this elitism that if you've been out in the in the, in the, in the world of uh, entrepreneurism and building stuff, therefore you're less of an academic. Okay. Okay? So, but the reality was that after I built Cytosolve, then I spent more years playing their game and I published to validate it. You know, these, you know, there's a lot of publications I did. Um, and I was able to show that our technology could take a physical phenomenon, mathematically model it, and it could match the actual data that we were getting. And then I went on to do many, many different examples uh, with industry, you know, with major pharma companies. So, so this was revolutionary, right? So completely revolutionary. Because people thought this was impossible, just like the military-industrial complex thought email was impossible. So what was your conclusion when you actually finished it? Like, was there this huge epiphany of like, oh my well, God. I just... Well, I knew this is what I wanted. Yeah, so I, to me, like it's it was not an epiphany. It was like excitement because after 40 some odd years, I'd fulfill what I wanted to see what my grandmother did, right? Yeah. I had basically created a way my grandmother did those combinations using her approach. I was able to basically create now a system that could model a disease and I could then combine, I could not only model that disease and I could test different ingredients on the computer because you cannot do it the old fashioned way. One ingredient, one compound takes 15 years. Now if you wanna do 10 compounds, you can't do it. You'd have to kill millions of animals. Yeah. So Cytosolve is a whole new way to eliminate animal testing to discover new medicines, in fact, discover, so I could go back to those ancient palm leaf scripts and look at what they said in combination and test it on cytosol. Yeah. Okay, so we published lots of papers during 2007 to 12, and in 12, 2012, I spun cytosol off as a new company to commercialize it. So, so what was the initial reaction going back again for the, from the whole medical? World of, of well, well, the medical world is interesting, right? And I don't really care what they think because they're they're a dead dinosaur. They're headed into their own oblivion. The pharmaceutical industry, um, but here's the opportunity. You see, the pharmaceutical industry is very good at building really good facilities. They have good clean rooms, etc. So what you see happening right now is people don't want to take drugs, right? That cause side effects. But albeit sometimes you need those drugs if you're in a late stage, like if you get your head blown off and you're in massive pain, I'm not gonna tell people don't take pain med because yeah. that's in that wartime situation. Yeah. But if you're a healthy person, you wanna eat well, that's not gonna help you. Cytosol can actually model like cancer. We can model Alzheimer's and figure out what combinations of food you should take to prevent Alzheimer's. That's what's, and it can also help both sides. Yeah. So what's happening is the pharmaceutical world can benefit from us to develop better medicines that don't have side effects without killing so many animals. And faster as well, right? And it faster. In fact, long. we discovered a drug for pancreatic cancer in a record 11 months and got it allowed by the FDA. 11 months, and what do you think it would have taken if you didn't use Cytosol? I, I don't know, you know? It's, it's far more longer than 11 months, years, yeah. you know? Yeah. My point is that we have, uh, we have major companies, a multi-billion dollar company recently used Cytosol they were in the middle of animal testing. They were unsure whether they should even go to clinical trials because they didn't really know what was going on. And they gave us a recent press release basically saying their, their animal data matched our in silico data, which because now we know why their stuff is working. 
So we've, we've helped major nutraceutical companies figure out why their products work. We're helping a number of companies actually build products that actually work. If you go on the flip side, forget the pharma, a lot of the supplements at Whole Foods are all snake oil. No one even knows if they work. We are helping companies who want to build products that work really create products. So what Cytosol is going to do, it's going to eliminate the garbage. It's going to help us build multi-combination therapies. Um, in fact, three years ago, a paper came out in Nature, one of the most eminent science magazines in the Western scientific community, saying that if you're going to solve cancer, you have to use combination therapy. You can't just use a single drug, like cocktails. But they said, if you try to do cocktails, it'll take forever. And my thesis was the only one cited in that paper. Now, by the way, I don't even know these guys as the only technology. So based on that paper, we raised about a million dollars. And we said, why don't we take on pancreatic cancer? And we went through the 252 drugs that were out for cancer. And we started combining them on the computer, millions of combinations. All the papers and combined. Yeah. Together, yeah. Well, actually, we tested different drug combinations because oh, yeah. you can't, you would have had to kill millions of animals to do that. And we found a combination that did better than the gold standard and we got it allowed by the FDA. And then we went to MD Anderson. It's what it almost seems like Cytosol is taking a life of its own as long as people keep on producing papers and um, you know, showing all the uh, molecular... Um, um, activity of um, different drugs, right? Well, what Cytosol does is Cytosol lets us look at a snapshot of science today, mathematically understand that because we're bringing it together. We're the glue. We're the orchestra conductor. We, we're like the choreographer versus these people don't want to. We're like the systems guys. We yeah. bring it together. Once we bring it together at that point in time, we can understand, okay, this is how Alzheimer's is working. We're not saying we're perfect because new, as new science comes, we can keep augmenting, getting it better and better and better. Yeah. But, but based on what we know, we could start testing in silico, not in vitro on a test tube, not in vivo on an animal, but on the computer long before we waste time in a test tube, long before. Yeah. So, so we that's can, what in silico means. In, on yeah, the computer, in silico right? means on the computer, okay. like silicon, yeah. right? So, uh, so that's how we're able to help pharmaceuticals. But similarly, you know, in the Eastern world, if you go to Whole Foods right now, you'll find uh, people make combinations of supplements for inflammation, like if your hand is hurting, right? If you have, so people combine like curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric, um, or resveratrol, which is the active ingredient of uh, uh, the grapes, right? Red wine grapes, uh, or the skin of grapes. Yeah. So it's been shown that both of these are anti-inflammatory, but if you combine them together. How much should you put together? So if you go ask like at Whole Foods, well, how come this has 20 milligrams of 30? Everyone says, oh, blah, 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 they hand wave. Oh, you should just trust us. Nice labeling, you know, we're, in, we're new age people, we care for you. Yeah. You have the other bamboozling that goes on on the other side. But what Cytosol is able to do is we're actually, we, we've actually been able to take the molecular pathways of inflammation, mathematically model it, do different dosages of curcumin and turmeric and actually figure out what are the right dosages that give the mass maximal effect on lowering inflammation? You see, so we can do on the computer what people are hand-waving on. Yeah, and you're also, um, I guess, like exposing all the side effects that people might have not known if they didn't, if maybe they didn't use the cytosol, right? They yeah, so we can predict things. stuff. Yeah. We can predict, hey, this could also occur. These are the toxicities. Yeah. So bottom line, um, so, you know, when I went to work for that medical school, in 1977-78, I went there to actually do medical research. You know, because I could program, I was diverted to create email. Just because they asked you if you Just could. Just because they it, asked yeah. me, right? Yeah, and I yeah, took that funny. on as a challenge. 
I came to MIT in and out of there, wanting to do medical research, was diverted into engineering. Ended up again doing EchoMail, which was an email analysis system, which we grew to a $250 million company. And then in 2003, I was finally able to pursue my dream, which was medicine, because this new field called systems biology, because finally the Western world said, hey, we have to take a systems approach. Now, the value of Cytosol is not only for helping develop drugs faster, not only for helping figure out like what my grandmother, combinations of nutraceuticals, functional foods, like we're going to be able to build supplements at work for athletes, for dogs, for canines, uh, you know, for animals. We're already doing this. It's not theory. But the other thing is Cytosol is a scientific source of truth. So I'll give you, you know, this final example um, about in 2014, I was walking down the halls of MIT. MIT Technology Review is one of the most eminent science magazines in the world. In fact, in 2000, I was featured on the front page for inventing EchoMail, yeah. a product, right, for automatic AI for email. Um, but in 2014, I saw this article which said, buy fresh, buy GMO. Think about that. It was a front page article on the front page of the most eminent science <laughs> magazine, buy fresh. I'm looking at this, I couldn't, I had to take a double take. Because it was almost making fun of the buy fresh, buy local movement. Yeah. And as you read this article, it's almost the white man's burden model, which is saying that the poor darkies in India and Africa, they need GMOs. They make this argument. So we yeah, have to, we need genetic engineering. Yeah. To me, it's Bill Gates trying to be the neo-messianic, neo-missionary model. You see, India had massive diversity of crops. Um, Africa's had massive diversity of crops. You know, they were eating quite well before we came and we destroyed their soil base and reduced their diversity. That's when now you have these babies with the big fat stomachs and therefore they need us. We need to help the Ethiopians, blah, 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 right? So that's what this article is talking about. And I said, something doesn't make sense here. So I started saying, what about if we could use cytosol to really understand what happens when you do genetic engineering? So what is genetic engineering? Genetic engineering... Um, is where you take the genome of a gene from one organism and you implant it into the genome of another organism. Now, this would never occur in nature. It occurs only in a lab. Yeah. So, by the way, stupid people at eminent, quote-unquote, eminent newspapers like the New York Times were for 10 years before we did this research, were saying, oh, genetic engineering is no different than plant breeding, which has been done for thousands of years. You see, people used to do breeding of corn or breeding of animals. All we're doing is accelerating that. Well, yeah. big difference. When you do breeding of animals or breeding of corn, it's full sexual reproduction, right? You're literally taking corn plants and pollen. It's full sexual reproduction. It's male and female. That's what yeah, but it's yeah, yeah, but it's it's not in a test tube. Yeah, okay. a salmon never mates with a tomato, or a flounder yeah. never mates with a tomato. When you take the gene of a flounder, which has good you know protective skin for cold, and you put it in a tomato to make it more, that would never occur in nature. Yeah. that's not plant breeding. I'm sorry. It's like a pig. Uh, I don't know, like having sex with like a cow or something, right? It's like well, it's worse like, than that. A, a, a pig having sex with a with a corn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't occur. Yeah, it's yeah. So what? So for years, um, companies like Monsanto were saying, you know, a genetically engineered soy. By the way, soy is ninety-seven percent of the soy in the United States is genetically engineered. Only three percent is organic. Don't worry. A genetic engineered soy is exactly the same as an organic plant. 
how were they able to do this? Well, the way they were able to do this was in 1976, um, there was a policy called substantial equivalence passed by the U.S. government to support medical innovation. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a medical innovator and you make a stethoscope. And it took you seven years to get that stethoscope passed through the FDA. It's a new innovation. Now let's say you made one little change, uh, like it's a weenie change, like you just changed the color of the stethoscope or some minor change, like the earpiece change. Well, in the old FDA laws, you would have to go through another seven years. Yeah. But in, the, in, in 1976, Gerald Ford signed a guideline called substantial equivalence saying that if you as a manufacturer, if you could show that your new stethoscope was substantially equivalent, then you could fast track it in one year you could get approval. So substantial equivalence meant you get to choose whatever the criteria were and you could show the equivalence. The equivalence of... Uh, to the, the new stethoscope with the old stethoscope. Oh, yeah. If you could say, hey, look, only, you know, they're pretty equivalent. Yeah. Okay. It, it had some reasonable rationale. Now, fast forward to around 2000, um, when uh, Obama's in office, genetically engineered foods are coming. They say, wow, what it should be the guidance for a genetically engineered food going to the public? Um, Michael Taylor, who was a former head of science policy at Monsanto, was appointed by Obama to be the deputy director of the FDA. Yeah, that, which is ridiculous. So he pulled <laughs> substantial equivalents, which was done for medical devices, which are far less complex than a, 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 a cell, which has billions of parts, okay, billions of interconnections. And he said, let's use substantial equivalents. It was a guideline. So what that meant was if you and I uh, uh, wanted to make a genetically engineered blueberry, we simply tell the FDA, hey, we've looked at the genetically engineered blueberry. We've compared these parameters, the color of the blueberry, the amount of water content, fat content, and how large it is. We can make up whatever criteria we want. And we have found it to be substantially equivalent plus or 20%. And we simply inform the FDA. By how much percent? Plus or minus 20%. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And the FDA will say, thank you, Ashiba. And uh, it's called a safety consultation letter. I the see. FDA actually has a hands-on view. They don't want to get involved. And then we don't actually have to do that. We don't even, in fact, have to show the FDA any results. We just have to tell them we did something. And then you have the right to take that blueberry to market. Really? So, so th in other words, like... A there is no safety assessment standards. Yeah. But we are told that all the safe... There. So when I looked at this problem, I said, why don't I use Cytosolve? Why don't I actually try to find out what are the mechanistic differences, mechanisms? So I use Cytosol to model the mechanisms of all plants. All plants have a metabolic pathway, like an engine, a systems engine that, um, uh, uh, that takes carbon and it converts it to a process for fuel, to keep it simple. And that system consists of methionine biosynthesis, methylation and formaldehyde detoxification. You don't have to get complicated. Think about it as three gears that work together, okay? But two of the gears actually create formaldehyde in the plant, which is a carcinogen. Yeah. And the plant, by the way, has a way to detoxify it through the third gear called formaldehyde detoxification. And it uses an antioxidant called glutathione. So bottom line is we published a paper showing how in a normal plant, how normal plants work, and we showed in a normal plant formaldehyde is created, but it gets detoxed because it has enough glutathione. Published that in a second paper. A third paper, we showed that when plants undergo stress, 
like during pollution or during drought, the plant actually will use up its glutathione because, it, because it's under stress and formaldehyde will accumulate. Publish that, no one said anything. Then in the fourth paper, we, did some, we found some fascinating data showing when Monsanto for soy did the genetic engineering of soy, we found five different things were perturbed, five molecules. When we plug that into the model, guess what we find out? We find out the plant, the genetically engineered plant is actually under the same kind of stress as when it's under drought conditions. And it actually will deplete its glutathione and will have much less glutathione. What does that mean? Which means the plant's under stress. Yeah. So imagine it's basically under constant stress. What does that mean for the human body though? Well, well okay. let's just look at the plant first of all. Bottom line, we showed that the genetically engineered soy plant has 250% less glutathione than the organic soy plant. So that means if glutathione had been the true marker of equivalence, soy would never have been allowed on the market. But they get to But they don't use that. They, so we did a real systems analysis. And we found out because see remember they're able to choose whatever criteria they want. Yeah, so but say if, if the grape is this size or this Exactly. Much but bad, it's like oh, the chicken yeah. it's it's like the fox running the hen house. And did people were people aware of this? Like, no, they weren't. It was okay. it was fu fundamentally new research. We published in journals, and then we get attacked by a guy called Kevin Folta, the head of the horticultural department at University of Florida. What year is this? This is in two thousand and fifteen. Okay. Okay. Fourteen, fifteen. Okay. Uh, fifteen. So he attacks me. For what is he saying? He's saying you didn't invent email. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't attack Completely any of the science. And he, yeah. he says, you know, he goes, this guy didn't invent email. And he never attacked. And he says, oh, this is just a mathematical model. It doesn't mean anything. And, and then he goes on to say, Kevin Folta, that by the way, I'm an independent scientist. I'm dedicated to science. I just want the truth. And I don't get paid off by Monsanto. So um, luckily, we published a fifth paper. We had found a research group in London, Leeds, in the United Kingdom, had actually grown the soy plant in a greenhouse. And they had come up with the same results, 250% less glutathione. And while we were publishing that paper, a FOIA... So that supported your... Yes, your supported our models, yeah. which means our models were showing them... A FOIA was done on Kevin Folta. FOIA means Freedom yeah. of Information Act because he is part of the University of Florida, which is a state federally funded university. Okay. 4,000 emails were released. And one of the emails is a letter from Monsanto to him giving him $25,000 to be their spokesman. And wow. that finally appears on the front page of the New York Times. Did you do the FOIA? No, uh, one of our, okay. someone else we did. It was just, it was just God doing his coincidental work because I believe this happens. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. So Fault has been to completely discredited. Our models match and we've basically shown this. So, but the European Commission doesn't want to accept our results because Europe wants to support Monsanto still, okay? When we've shown the system biology basis, they can't ignore it. But in America, they do accept it. Here, right? Well, well, it's, 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 the point is, we've shown the rock-solid science, yeah. but science is a religion, right? Yep. Uh, my point is that they have, so we had uh, Michael, uh, one of our, uh, my co-research on this was Michael Hansen. Michael Hansen is one of the most respected scientists, and Michael's backed us up on this. In fact, this paper, when this got out, uh, Pierce Brosnan, who is a very famous Hollywood actor, 007, uh, produced a movie called um, 
Poisoning Paradise. It's about how Monsanto and other companies have destroyed the island of Kauai, one of the beautiful islands. It recently came out, right? Yeah, and his wife is an investigative journalist. I ended up becoming the main scientist in that movie because of this research work. My point is this. Cytosol is a technology that confines the source of scientific truth. So we have conclusively shown, for example, our model showed that organic soy would have about 9.9 levels of glutathione the the Roundup soy would have 3.7 levels. And that's what um, they found in the actual uh, research that they did in London, physically growing it. So my point is, mathematical modeling can work. Yeah. You know? what was, what's the effect on humans? Right? So here's the thing. The same process that, uh, that plants use to uh, do C1 metabolism is the same thing in your gut bacteria. Yeah. Okay? So, and they have found that pieces of the DNA strands in your gut bacteria. The point is, um, before I go speculate that, the real issue is, in, in, I think I want to close this podcast, so we have to take a systems approach. So if you look at nature as a grand engineer, nature went through billions and billions of years to create that soy plant. And it's a, it's a complex system, like the gears in the back or the space shuttle of the back of a watch. Everything has been finely tuned. Now you're telling me some guy at Monsanto saying he can just go throw in something in that finely to it in it and it's not going to have any effect. Bypass. A little titsy weeny teeny without understanding the system dynamics. Cytosolve helps us understand the system dynamics. And it says if you're going to do that thing, it's going to have this consequence. So I'm not pro or anti-GMO. We can get there. But even if I were to give them their thing, I'm not pro or anti. Let me take that position. But what I am conclusive is there are no safety assessment standards for genetically engineered foods and are they they're avoiding all this um, and these are very fragile systems in in reality they're avoiding this evidence because of profit right that's what it comes down well yeah so so the real reason they're avoiding it they have a racket Monsanto um, after World War after Vietnam War they had created um, Agent Orange which they created with Dow which was a herbicide which uh, which when you drop from the plains would kill all the le- trees so they could see the enemy when when vietnam ended remember the military industrial complex creates stuff for war and then they try to resuscitate it for civilian use so let's let's follow this Just carefully because it's convenient they no no to make profit, a secondary right? money yeah so, that's what so, I mean. for them like they can make more money exactly it. so so they created this ability it's a complex technology you deliver through the air, an herbicide, to kill foliage. Well, after Vietnam ended, they had this technology. said, okay, let's use it for factory farms. Yeah. Drop stuff and we'll kill the weeds that are growing around the soy. And they dominated that. So every farmer had to buy Roundup, also known as glyphosate. And that's where they forced everyone. To, to, get, to buy their weed killer. Yeah. But now, that weed killer was also killing the soy plants. So what they then did was they genetically engineered their own version of a soy plant, which could withstand glyphosate, their herbicide. So now what they did was on the one hand, they monopolized the weed killer market. Now they're destroying the soil. They basically devastated the soil of of the topsoil of the United States. Then they go saying, okay, now if you want to get higher yield, you have to buy our soy, which can withstand our herbicide and only kill the weeds. So now they force the farmers to also buy their soy plant. Yeah. And if that soy seed lands on someone else's, they'll go charge them. Now the point I'm making here, the bigger systems point here, 
is that the racket here, and it comes back to our first podcast on email, is this. The military-industrial complex creates stuff for war, and then they try to repurpose that innovation for civilian life. But with email, they have a major problem. Email, they want it, the problem is the inventor of email is alive, and I didn't create email for war. It was created for a civilian application to help the secretary. They wrote a false story trying to say that email was created for military communication, now want to get a trophy for saying we brought it back to civilian life. That's why the invention of email is so devastating to the military industrial complex. Because the truth is, they they typically create stuff for military and then resurrect it for civilian life to make their secondary income when it doesn't, in fact, it's not even useful. Yeah. You see, their text messaging is frankly useless. They didn't create email. They created text messaging, which is good for text messaging. But if you look at, for example, the Haber process, um, many wars ago, I think World War One or two, they created a way to fixate nitrogen, which created trinitrotoluene, TNT. Fixate nitrogen, that's bombs. Well, and they created, it was called the Haber process. When they did that, they created a chemical innovation to make weaponry. Well, but it was actually nitrogen fixation technology. Well, when the war ended, they said, well, what do we do with this? Oh, let's fixate nitrogen to make fertilizer. Secondary market. And they forced the quote unquote green revolution on everyone. For centuries, people in India and Africa were farming without fertilizer. They knew how to keep the microorganisms in the soil. They did crop rotation. They had very luscious soil. So these guys used a military technology and then did PR, the Green Revolution. All the darkies need the Green Revolution. And shoved that and they sold fertilizer, nitrogen fixation. You see? So it goes from war to civilian, war to civilian. And then they create... And they shove down stuff in the civilian world that's not needed. Yeah. And then they layer one military tech. So they did nitrogen fixation. Then they did fertilizer. Then they did herbicides, Agent Orange. Then they did genetic engineering, which was done for biological warfare. You see? But the invention of email shows you don't need war to create innovation. That you can actually go the right way. That innovation actually occurs when you want to solve a civilian problem. What I'm trying to do with Cytosol is to solve a civilian problem. Why are we killing so many animals? Yeah. Why did my grandmother be able to come up with these things without having to go to Harvard Medical School? And how, how she helped a lot of people. So the motivation for innovation does not need to be war. The motivation for innovation is about everyday people looking at a problem and solving that problem. So Cytosov is a solution for a problem of an ordinary woman in a village, how she was doing it. And what I'm able to do in the modern world is to understand those mechanisms. Email was trying to help ordinary people, a secretary, go from the typewriter to the keyboard. The military-industrial complex and the academic elites always want to subvert this natural process and impose their wartime process. And in that process, they want to brainwash all of us that they are the source of all innovation. And that's the status quo in a way, right? That's the status quo. What you're providing is revolutionary, right? Right. It's a completely different system. If, the, the common thing between email and Cytosol is decentralized. Yeah. Email is decentralized. The military wanted hierarchical centralized messaging. Cytosol is decentralized. We're saying, let's work with all these researchers and Cytosolve is a is a vehicle for collaboration and cooperation. That's what email was. Yeah, it really it's makes me theme. think how much more we could get done 
if everything was based on a collaborative effort and it wasn't right. based on war and uh switching that the innovation from war to human life which i think yeah. you should have like a term because this is like a process i was i call it a collaboratory that. okay so war is based on command and control think about war centralized command and control that's what they call it command and control yeah. defcon whatever we have this place in the middle of the i don't know mountain command and control don't question your mission don't do question you do this you do this yeah. you do this right well, Cytosol is based on, you know what, screw. Because what happens in all this research is one guy at Harvard thinks he's a master of Alzheimer's research. If a new research is done by some young postdoc at some state university, his may never get published. We're saying we're going to find that guy. We're going to bring it all together. Yeah. Right? Email was about decentralization. Cytosol was about decentralization. But what Google and Facebook want to do is now centralize email. Yeah. You see? So it's... Fundamentally, I think we really get the richness for human endeavors when we go into cooperation. I think you pointed out decentralization. And that's ultimately what this comes down to. You know, innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. That's what email shows. Cytosol shows that we can cure many diseases and it should be personalized for the individual, but again, taking a decentralized approach, period. So anyway, I think that's pretty good for this podcast. We've gone from email to Cytosol. Uh, hopefully people have learned systems. I think uh, the next episode will continue this, perhaps talk about AI. Yeah, definitely. definitely.